Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Thursday, January the 26th, 2023. It is currently 4.17 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central Studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. Have you ever started something and then regretted <laughs> that you ever started it? I, I don't know. Do I regret starting this? I don't know. We are in the middle of kind of a mini-series well, on Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. We are reviewing the audio of a podcast episode. The podcast episode or the podcast that we are reviewing uh, is Theology and the Raw. And they dedicated one of their episodes to Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. And their basic thesis is this, that Romans 7, 14 through 25 does not describe a saved person. It describes an unsaved person. Not only does it describe an unsaved person, even though Romans 7, 14 through 25 has one personal pronoun after another personal pronoun after another personal pronoun after another personal pronoun, the author, Paul, is not describing himself. Paul is pretending to be someone else. He's pretending to be a character. In this case, he is pretending to be an unsaved Jew, and he is describing all of his struggles, because the things he wants to do, he doesn't do, but the things he doesn't want to do, he does. And the reason he's having this struggle is because, well, you see, he's unsaved. Now, Paul was saved, but Paul was pretending to be an unsaved Jew so that unsaved people could go, wow, that's me. The things I want to do, I don't do, but the things I don't want to do, those are the things I'm doing. What? How can I fix this? Well, if you get saved, then you'll do what you want to do, and the things you don't want to do, you'll stop doing, because we all know how salvation fixes that, right? I mean, as a Christian, the things you don't want to do, you've stopped doing, right? Right? All the things you want to stop doing, you've just they, you just stopped. I, that's how it worked for me, right? I, I'm i like, look, I never want to do this and this and this again. I got saved, and guess what? I've never committed those sins ever again. In fact, I've got good news, ladies and gentlemen. I have now reached sinless perfection. The things that I don't want to do, I never do, and the things I want to do, I do those perfectly every single time. And what was the solution? It was salvation, because salvation is not about an imputed righteousness. Obviously, salvation is about an infused righteousness that makes me better in practice, not perfect in position. Okay, well, obviously I'm being a little bit sarcastic, but that's basically the way they're selling this. Romans 7, 14 through 25, Paul is pretending to be an unsaved person. Unsaved people are the ones who struggle, right? It's the unsaved person. It's like, I don't want to, oh, I keep doing what I don't want to do, and I can't do what I want to do. That's the unsaved person. The saved person, obviously in contrast, would be the person who, I don't want to do it, I don't do it. I don't want to sin anymore, I stop sinning. I want to obey God, and I want to be holy, and I want to love, I do it. Now, the only problem with this theory and with this thesis is this thing called, I don't know, let's see, what, what do we call this? Let me see. I got to, I may have to look it up. Okay, what is it called? What is it called when we see things as they really are? What do we, oh, reality. 
Because here's the reality. This is objective fact, cannot be disputed, cannot be debated. Are you ready? Christians, those who have trusting trusting in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation, Christians who believe in the Bible, read the Bible, who believe the correct doctrine about God and about the Bible and about salvation, those believers, this is what, this is an objective fact. They have a sinful nature. They continue to sin. They cannot be perfect. They cannot stop sinning. That is a fact. Now, if that is a fact, does Romans 7, 14 through 25 then describe a saved person or a lost person? Because if it's describing a lost person, then you would have to say that a saved person no longer struggles. But a Christian would obviously continue to struggle because a Christian is someone who still has a sinful nature, who still sin, who still, who cannot be perfect. That's just an objective fact. So it's just bizarre that you would like, hey, all of you people out there who read Romans 7, 14 through 25, and you think that's describing a saved person, you're just clueless. You don't know how to exegete the text. It's just, it's just a weird position to have just based off reality. So let me kind of give you my thesis. Here is my thesis. Are you ready? I'm going to state this again. Here is my thesis. Save people. Still have a sinful nature still sin, and cannot be perfect. Therefore, they are constantly in sin in some way, shape, or form, and that sin is a is any failure to conform to God's holy law in thought, word, deed, practice, internal, external, any lack of conformity. And we're in a perpetual state of sin because God's standard is perfection and none of us are ever perfect. Therefore, we're in a perpetual state of sin in some way, shape, or form. And as a Christian, we know God's law. We want, we do have a, a desire to fulfill it and obey it, but we never do. We, we always fall, the things we want to do, we don't do. And the things we want, the things we don't want to do, we do. And the things we want to do, we fail to get done. That's just the reality of the Christian life. That's my, that's my theory. That's just reality. And then here's another reality. This is a theological reality. We are saved by an imputed righteousness. So this is just a fact. If that is true, if, if, if being saved by an imputed righteousness is true, then this is a fact. Listen, yourself, you, you as an individual, in relationship to imputed righteousness, you are perfect. You are a new creature. This is in relation to imputed righteousness. You're a new creature. The old is gone. Everything is new. As far as imputed righteousness is concerned, make sure you understand this. You are free from sin. You are obedient. You're a conqueror. You're victorious. All of this is true because of imputed righteousness, because Christ's passive and active obedience is imputed to your account. You're declared perfectly righteous, holy, and without sin. That is true. But practically, there is a distinction between yourself practically and yourself from your, as far as your, there's a difference in yourself related to your practical righteousness and yourself related to an imputed righteousness. Your practical righteousness is always imperfect. There's sin, there's struggle, there's failure over and over and over. That is an objective reality once again. So my thing is, if you're going to interpret Romans 7, 14 through 25, and you can make all the exegetical arguments you want, 
You can try everything you want. Here's what I know. If that's not describing a believer, then that means it's describing a lost person. So a believer would be the direct opposite of this. So if this is describing a lost person, then a believer would be opposite of this, which means a believer would be someone who stops doing the things they don't want to do and they do everything they want to do, which you would have to then argue sinless perfection is not only possible, it is probable. Now, let me read the text, Romans 7, 14 through 25. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. According to their theory that we've been listening to now for three parts, this is part four, that I, Paul, is not referencing himself. He is now pretending to be someone else. He's pretending to be a lost person. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. That, that here is this lost person like, man, I don't want to do wrong. I don't want to do, oh, but I keep doing it. Oh, I want to do, but I, I can't do right. I can't do right. And there, according to their argument, this is a lost Jew. So here is someone who's lost and they're, they're like, but I want to obey God's law. I want to obey God's law. I want to so bad. And, 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 and I want to obey it, but I can't do, I don't get the things done that I want to do. And I want to avoid breaking God's law, but I keep, I keep doing what I don't want to do. According to them, a lost person wants to obey God's law. They want to. They want to so bad, and they don't want to break it. Now, I don't think that even fits the Old Testament Jew. I don't think that even fits the Jews in the Old Testament. They had God's law, and they wanted to break it. They desired to break it because that's the sinful nature. The sinful nature, whether it's a Gentile, a Jew, doesn't matter the person Nobody wants to be obedient to God's law. Our sinful nature wants to be obedient to itself. So clearly, if they're going to interpret this way, that this is a, a lost person who wants to do good and doesn't want to do wrong, then they clearly have to be approaching this from a either a full-blown Pelagian to a semi-Pelagian understanding of human nature, where I believe human nature is totally depraved. But they go on, uh, verse 16, or the text goes on. For then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. Where is this will present? Where is the will that wants to obey God present in a lost person? So in a lost person, there is a will to obey God? Whoa. Okay. They go on to say, uh, let's see, uh, let's see here. Um, Verse 19, for the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. Are you saying the lost person delights in the law of God after the inward man? A lost person delights in the law of God. Man, I must have been a, a, a wrong kind of lost person. That's all I can say. 
But I see another law and my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Please note that law of my mind. See, in the mind, there is a desire to obey God. There is a, because they've changed, the person has changed their thinking about God and about his law and about right and wrong. And that change of mind is known as called repentance, where I've changed my mind about God's law. I've changed my mind about what's right and what's wrong. I've ch- I know this is wrong. I don't want to do what's wrong. I want to do what's right. But guess what? I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. The law of sin is where? In my flesh. It's my sinful nature. A wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Who's going to deliver him? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, clearly 25, if you're going to say that 14 to 24 is describing a lost person, clearly the person gets saved in verse 25. But look, not, notice what the, the saved person says. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with my mind, back to the mind, I myself serve the law of God. The, mi- the m- mind is serving the law of God. The mind wants to obey God. The mind is like, cha- because repentance is a change of mind. But look what happens. But with the flesh, the law of sin. So even if you say 14 through 24 is the lost person, 25 is the saved person who's literally saying what he just said in verses 14 through 24. 25 is just a concluding remark saying this is the reality. There's this conflict. There's this division within us. That division is not within the lost person. This division is with a saved person. A saved person has repented, changed their mind about the law of God, about what sin is, about what righteousness is. We want to pursue it. We want to, we desire it. We want it. But there's something in us that fights against us. It's the sinful nature. And that sinful nature has a controlling, dominating power. And if you say, no, it doesn't, you would have to, look, here's how I know it's it's a controlling, dominating power. Never sin again. I can't do that. Why can't you? Because there's something in you that won't allow you to stop sinning. That is your sinful nature, meaning it's got the dominating control. It's got the power. Be perfect. I can't be perfect. If you can't be perfect and you can't stop sinning, why can't you? There's something in you called the sinful nature. It has the controlling force. So practically, you're going to live in sin. You're going to be a sinner. No matter what, no matter how many victories you get, there's going to be countless other defeats because you have a sinful nature. You will never be perfect. You will never be holy. You'll never be righteous. But at the very same time that is true, at the exact same time that is true, over here because of the imputed righteousness, you can confess, and it's absolutely true. I'm a new creature in Christ. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. Not over here practically, but now because of the imputed righteousness. I'm now free from sin. Not practically, but because of imputed righteousness. I am now a more than a conqueror over sin in my imputed righteousness. Or not my, in the imputed righteousness accredited to my account, all right? That, that is the only way to understand Christianity, There is this imputed reality and there's this practical reality. The imputed reality is different than the practical reality. 
And if you don't draw, make a distinction between these two, then you start claiming that people can be and practice what they are in their in the imputed righteousness. And we can never be and practice what we are with the imputed righteousness. That's why it was imputed and not infused. Now, I think I just kind of walked you through it and just explained my position uh, as clearly as I can. But now what we're going to do is listen to them because they are now in Romans 7, 14, and they're going to show us, according to them, exegetically why everything I just said was 100% wrong. But remember, if what they are saying is right, then you as a believer, before you were saved, you could say the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do. But after you're saved, you can never say that again. Because now, the things you don't want to do, you just stop. And the things you want to do, you just do. Problem is, that would mean sinless perfection. But they want to hedge their bet. They want to say, no, no, no. This is describing a lost person. A saved person is completely different. And as soon as they start telling you you're different, they almost always throw in, but, however, you can't do it perfectly. Well, wait a minute. If I can't do it perfectly, that means the things I don't want to do, I'm still doing. Unless you're saying you don't want to be perfect. You can't play these games that they want to play, but maybe they're getting ready to explain this in a way that's going to prove everything I just said was wrong. I'm willing to hear it. I look, if they've got a solution, I'm willing to and I admit I, I will admit this. And, and I and this is true. I, I want you to hear this. I wish with everything in my being that I could just wake up tomorrow and be like, things I don't want to do, never have to worry about them again. I won't do them. And the things I want to do, I'm gonna get them done perfectly. I'm gonna be holy, I'm gonna be righteous, I'm gonna be perfect. I wish that was true. I wish I could say that I'm free from sin. I wish I could say that sin no longer has the power of me. I'm the boss over sin. And I, I can say yes to God and no to sin. I wish all of that was true. But here's, here's the reality. I know I'm going to wake up tomorrow. Guess what? I'm still going to sin throughout the day in some way, shape, or form. Sin, I'm not completely free from sin because I cannot be perfect. I cannot be holy. So I know sin is still present working in me and has a controlling, dominating force in my life, just like it has in your life, no matter how much you want to deny it. My hope is, one, the imputed righteousness, where in my imputed righteousness, I'm perfect, and the ultimate, ultimate work of glorification where all sin will be removed. But I wish it was true, but I just know it's not because I've seen 2,000 years of church history and I've seen my own life. I know my own thoughts and feelings. Let's see if they can prove me wrong and give us the solution that will fix all of these problems and Christians now can do exactly what they want to do and stop doing what they don't want to do. They say it's clear, and it's the only way to interpret it. Well, let's hear them do so. Uh, that Paul is using. Yeah, let's go to the actual passage. What are some things here yeah. um, in the narrow context that show that it's not talking about, um, that, it, that it must be talking about a, a, um, 
a non-believer. Yeah, very good. So, and seven, let's go to verse 14 here. Um, Joey has his know Greek the, text out, by the way. The, the law is spiritual. Um, and then he says, but I myself am a fleshly, sarkonos. Um, it's interesting that um, hmm. in the Greek, uh, Paul uses not just uh, am, I am. He uses I myself am, the ego in me, this yeah. emphatic ego. Um, and so, so let's stop right here. Please note. I am carnal. Play a little game. You want to play a little game? Can you be a believer and be carnal? Now, they're saying this is describing a lost person. But do we have anything that would describe a, a Christian as being carnal? Let's just, let's just see. Let's just see. Blue Letter Bible app. Blue Letter Bible app. Let's go to Romans 7, 14. Romans 7, 14. Let's go to carnal. And it's this Greek word. Strong's G, 4559, Sarkikos. 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 You may go, what's the big deal about Sarkikos? Let's look up another passage. That's Sarkikos. Everybody knows where I'm going. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, the word carnal is used. The word carnal is there. Guess what Greek word it is? Strong's G, 4559, Sarkikos. Sarkikos. Hmm. It's Sarkikos. It's the same Greek word. Hmm, let me think about this. So Romans 7, 14, that, that's Paul pretending to be a lost person. Even though he's using the personal pronoun, he's pretending to be a lost person because we know a lost person can be carnal, but a saved person cannot be carnal. But over here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it's the exact same Greek word, sarkikos. Look what happens, ladies and gentlemen. I know this is going to be shocking to some. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. These babes in Christ are sarkikos. They're carnal. So Christians can be carnal. Just, I, I, that, that doesn't require a PhD. That doesn't require anything. First, not only does it not only does it not require a PhD, not only does it not require seminary education, it just requires honesty with your life and the life of every believer you know. We are there's and we are in our practical sense. We are you can say no, we're not carnal. Yes, we are. We still have a fleshly nature, and that fleshly nature has a ruling power because we cannot be perfect and we cannot be sinless. Meaning, there's a limit to what we can do. It's controlling. Sarkikos, the people in the church of Corinth were carnal. <gasps> Wait, and yet Paul did not say they're not saved. He called them babes in Christ. Hmm. Wow. All right, let's see what they're going to say here. Some people think that even this is Paul giving a clue that he is shifting into this impersonation. So Stanley Stowers talks about the speech in character. 
the prosopopoeia is trying to say that uh, here with the rhetorical question that Paul is asking um, in, in identifying someone that this would be a clear clue to the audience who was very familiar with this trope, um, that with, with this rhetorical device that Paul was shifting and putting on the mask, but uh, that Paul is saying that. All right. So this is the verse where Paul is now shifting. He's now he's putting on the mask. He's now pretending he's now being a character. Paul now is getting into a character. He's like, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready. Okay. All right. Pretend to be a lost person. I'm going to pretend to be a lost person, everyone, because we know lost people can't, we know say people can't be carnal. We know that. Now just remember this same Paul, I think later on, he refers to himself as the chief of sinners, doesn't he? Okay, uh, yes. Okay, someone just made a great point. Someone just said, him saying, I myself, is clear shift that he's pretending. Yes, that's literally what they just argued. See, look, he uses this personal pronoun. Clearly, this is showing that he's now pretending, right? Because whenever I get ready to pretend, I start using personal pronouns, right? As soon as I get ready to pretend... Pretend I don't start. I don't speak of myself in the third person. No, 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 no. Now I'm like, I, 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 me, 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 me. That's when I'm pretending. And when I'm not pretending, I say. Wait, so when I'm pretending, I use a personal pronoun, but when I'm not pretending. So every time Paul is using personal pronouns, he's pretending. I would love for you to go through all the writings of the Apostle Paul, and every time he uses I, me, he uses personal pronouns, just understand he's shifting and he's pretending to be someone else. He is fleshly. Uh, we don't see this anywhere else uh, in Scripture, Paul referring to himself as fleshly after being a believer or of believers, um, except for this um, irony in uh, 1 Corinthians where he's going to talk about these fleshly believers. But Paul's going to t- say these, you know, it's where he gets frustrated with them. It's like, ah, I want to give you guys meat, but you're still nursing. The, the, and there it's not that this is the expectation of Christians. It's that, hey, you guys need to move beyond that. It's time to stop mm. being this oh. fleshly believer. But um, so th- this emphasis here, I. So nowhere does Paul refer to believers as carnal, except in this weird place in 1 Corinthians 3, where he's just kind of saying, hey, guys, you need to move past this. You need to move. But to say that you need to move past it means he's acknowledging that's what they are, (laughs) right? (laughs) Are you saying, well, you're not really fleshly, but I'm just so irritated. So was Paul just irritated with them and like, I'm so irritated with you that I'm going to say that you're fleshly. I mean, you're not really fleshly. You're not really carnal. I'm just, I'm just so irritated because, you know, Paul's not really writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's, (laughs) there's no place where Paul refers to believers as fleshly and carnal, except this weird place in first Corinthians where he's not really doing so. But he's just telling them to move on. <laughs> what? And when Paul, Paul Paul says he's the chief of sinners, let me find that passage. Is he not referring to himself as being fleshly? If you're the chief of sinners, let's see if I can find it. Chief of sinners. Uh, 
uh, it is, what is, where is it? Um, where is it? Chief of sin. First Timothy, is it? Uh, okay, First Timothy 1.15. First Timothy 1.15. First Timothy 1.15, where Paul says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the, chief, into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Now, some people may say he was chief, but he's no longer chief. So maybe you could go that direction. We would have to go through everything Paul ever says of himself, but they're saying that Paul never describes himself this way ever again. So if Paul's never, so if Paul describes himself this way here, it cannot be Paul because he doesn't describe himself the same way later on. So in other words, for any description of anyone in the Bible to be true, they must describe themselves that way two times. I guess, guess this is the hermeneutical rule. If Wait, no, that, that can't be Paul because he's using personal pronouns. And whenever you use personal pronouns, clearly you're pretending to be someone else. Number two, clearly this can't be Paul because Paul is not, doesn't describe himself this way anywhere else. Number three, clearly this can't be Paul because he's referring to himself as being carnal and he never describes Christians as being carnal. Well, except in 1 Corinthians where, well, I mean, he's not really, I mean, he's kind of, I mean, he's just telling them to move on. That, that's, that's our arguments that we've got so far. Myself, some scholars think that the ego me, if you have any Greek readers in your group, that this is Paul saying, I, in my own nature, uh, I separated from Christ, I apart from Christ. Um, and so my, my interpretation is that this is actually Paul talking about himself before Damascus Road, before God knocked him off his donkey. Uh, and uh, Wait. So was Paul sliding into character or is Paul referring to himself? Does the pronouns refer to... Now he's saying that this is Paul referring to himself. So Paul's not slipping into character. Paul is referring to himself. <laughs> okay, all right. Um, we're just gonna, we're gonna play along. We're gonna play along. So we can talk about later the different ideas of who this I might be. But uh, I myself in the past is how I would take this um, was fleshly without the spirit of Christ in me. So so to be clear, there's even if we talk about a post or. All right. So what Paul so what Paul is doing here is what he meant to what he meant to say was for we know that the law is spiritual, but I was carnal. I was sold under sin. He's referencing past tense, but Paul can't figure out how to use past or present tense. Now, you could make an argument and maybe in Greek, well, Greek grammar has past, present, future, right? I mean, right? Non-converted person, even that there's a debate. Is it talking about, is it Paul's still autobiography? Is it a generic human? Is it specifically yeah. a Jew? Certainly it's a Jew because he talks about loving the law. I mean, no non-Jew in the first century would have said they love the Jewish law. It doesn't make sense. But so you think this is, this is Paul really reflected on his autobiography before Christ. Yeah, I, I could be persuaded the other way. Um, what my, my main contingent is that Paul is not talking about himself as a post-conversion right, okay. and the typical Christian life. Uh, but uh, if we want to talk about some in a moment, uh, the different uh, possibilities of who the I is, we can bring in uh, that as well. But okay. I think this is Paul, giving autobiography, bringing in, going back to his roots. Again, I can't sing that, but um, 
Uh, so he's going to bring in Adam language. He's going to bring in, bring in Israel language and also a language of his non-believing brothers and sisters that he's going to talk about in Romans 9 through 11. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, in the Greek, it's interesting because it, it's he begins it with the ego. And Preston, you're a Greek reader, and you know Paul doesn't often use ego a me. Mm. I, I myself am. Um, but, and so already there's some, something that, that's interesting that's going on there. But also he, sw- he switches. I myself have been sold as a captive, sold as a slave to sin. Yeah. You notice that that verb there, and I don't get into the weeds of all this Greek in my book, but uh, the verb there is a perfect participle. So you have a paraphrastic. Um, so it's uh, this, he is, he is screaming it as loud as he can. I, whoever this I is, am sold as a slave to sin. Now, again, if you look at Romans 6. Now, here, here we go. Here's a question for everyone. All right, here we go. You ready? Now, I know he's going to go to Romans 6, how we've been set free from slavery. And I believe we've been set free. And imputed righteousness. But here's the million-dollar question. Are you ready? Okay. Are you, as a believer, a slave to sin? Now, I'm going to immediately get 900 emails going, no, I'm not. I am not a slave to sin. I've been set free. Okay, calm down. First, calm down. All right. Take a couple of steps back. You're spitting in my face. Just take a couple of steps back. Hear me out. Take a deep breath. All right, here we go. Let me just ask you a simple question. So you're no longer a slave to sin. All right, that, that's awesome. Now, Here's my question. Since you're no longer a slave to sin, that means you can stop sinning and you're perfect, right? I mean, if you're no longer a slave to sin, that means you're free. And if you're free, you can be perfect. And if you say, no, 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 I can't be perfect and I can't stop sinning, then you're still a slave. You can't say you're free and yet say, well, I still can't stop sinning and I still can't be perfect. If you still can't be perfect and you still can't stop sinning, you're not free. Sin is controlling you. And like, it may give you a longer leash. And I've already used this in a previous episode. You're like a dog on a leash and you're like, you don't, you like your leash used to be really short and you could only go a little far. And then pull your neck. Now, all of a sudden, you start running. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm good to go. I'm good to go. And then all of a sudden, it yanks you. And then you get, you're like, okay, well, I'm not completely free. Now, if you can't stop sinning, you're not free. If you can't be perfect, you're not free. So then how do we understand the language? Like in Romans 6, it seems to say that we're free. We're free in Christ and imputed righteousness. Practically, and and another thing, if I'm going to be free, guess what? It has to be the eradication of the old nature. There could be no sinful nature left inside of you. You can't say that you're no longer a slave and have a sinful nature. So for this position to work, hey, This can't be describing a believer because believers are not slaves to sin. We've been set free. They seem to have a hard time understanding there's two realities of every believer. There's the reality of what I am in Christ because of imputed righteousness and what I am practically. I know what we are practically. I don't care what, how many Greek words you quote. I don't care how many parts of Greek grammar you quote. This is just factual. We still sin. 
meaning we're not free. There's yet to be a, a Christian who's been perfect. We're not free. What he's, he said over and over again, thanks be to God, you're no longer sold as a slave to sin. And so it seems like there's a, controverse, a contradiction yeah. uh, even at this point. There's no contradiction. What do they not understand? We're saved by an imputed righteousness. The imputed righteousness declares me to be perfect, free, a new creature in Christ. Old things are gone. Everything is new. That is true. And I'm just going to now go back to the words. I was trying to avoid using the terminology position and practice, but I'll just, my position in Christ is my, I am, I have an imputed righteousness and imputed obedience. I'm perfect. I'm free. I'm holy. I'm righteous. I walk in the spirit. Everything's perfect. In practice, I have a sinful nature. I'm still corrupt and I sin and sin and sin and sin and I cannot obey the law of God perfectly. That's why I needed the imputed righteousness. Christ did not come to infuse me with a righteousness so that now I can keep the law. He came to give me an imputed righteousness because I'm a sinner who will never keep the law. This is, this is starting to sound more and more like Roman Catholicism than it is anything else. Like that, We would say, this can't be Paul talking about a post-conversion believer. And, and that's where Christians, they'll read that when they, you know, just got off porn or slept with a girlfriend or something. Like, yes, see, yes, yes. I'm like Paul. Okay, mm-hmm. we can have that experience. And, I, and, I, yeah. um, and we'll get to some of the pastoral stuff li- li- later. But, like, mm-hmm. do you think it's so easy, so natural are you telling me Christians don't sleep with their girlfriends? Are you telling me Christians don't use porn? You're out of your mind if you don't. Now, now he's he he kind of you hear how he kind of paused and said, "Well, I mean that can happen." Wait, no, 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 no. If you're free, that can't happen. And if it does happen, then why does it happen if you're free? You at least have to acknowledge that the, the point is Christians commit. Don't even get me started how much pornography is, 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 is st- people, men struggle with in every church. Give me a look at the statistics about how many pastors struggle with porn. Yeah. F- find me a, a, a youth, a, a youth group or a singles group, right? Give me, give me the singles class, you know, that 18 to 20, whatever, and give me the teens from say 14 to 18. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No sex is going on in those groups. None at all. I mean, it's just purity, purity, purity. There's no lust. (laughs) There's no, there, there's no, there's no, no, they're just perfect. It's like you walk by those classrooms and all you see the halos and you hear, Hallelujah, hallelujah, just angels singing above them because there's no, give me a break, give me a, even in the church of Corinth, there was sexual sin. Oh man, okay, all right. To, for modern, Western Christians to to kind of feel this, right? And then to see the passage and just immediately want to read it that way. But like you said, that, if you just think just exegetically, I wonder why Christians feel this passage. They feel this passage because it's the reality of every Christian's life. It was the reality of the church of Corinth. And listen, from, from Acts to Revelation, every letter written to a church, sin, problems, division, fighting, arguing, sin. I mean, 
over and over. You, you, you would think it would be like, hey, guys, you got saved. You've been free from sin. Stop sinning. You, you're free. You don't. You, but why is every letter deals with sin? Why does it have to constantly deal with sin for believers? There, for a believer, hey, now that you're a believer, you can you you can stop sinning. So all, all this is all I would have to do for a new believer. Here's the law of God. Go obey it. I wouldn't even need to tell them to worry about the imputed righteousness anymore. You don't even need imputed righteousness because you didn't get an imputed righteousness. You are given an ability and your ability is not that you can keep the law. The only problem is we don't keep the law. We fall short of it over and 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 over again. That's the reality of the Christian life. Where else do we see Paul describing the Christians as being sold in the bondage to sin. I mean, just in chapter five, chapter eight, he says the exact opposite. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. First Corinthians three, which you dismissed outright. Okay. First Corinthians, he even talks about the judgment of believers that all of their works could burn up yet. They would be saved. Uh, Every letter Paul writes to is talking about sin, sin, and, and the believers. Put off, put on, the fight, the struggle. Why, why? Why does he have to constantly keep dealing with these issues? Because sin shows up in every church. Sin shows up in the life of every believer. Not only does it show up, it's constantly there unless you redefine sin. If sin is a lack of conformity to the holy standard of God, which demands perfection internally, externally, it's a lack of conformity in thought, word, and deed, then if unless you change that definition to sin is only an external action, and here is the list of external actions, don't commit those external actions, then maybe you have an argument. Maybe. I think you're still going to find Christians violating those external activities. Oh, man. Yeah, so you would have some like uh, Jimmy Dunn, our uh, gross uh, Dr. Fata. Um, <laughs> he's going to say that here we have like this schizophrenic Paul. You're um, saying to, gross, uh, you're using the, the, German, <laughs> the German gross, not the English <laughs> gross. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, right, right. All those yeah. outfits were pretty gross. when. You... <laughs> <laughs> uh, so and it's for uh, Douglas Mood, this clinches the argument here that Paul okay. can't be talking about himself or the believer, um, lest. And so you brought up uh, Tom Schreiner earlier. Uh, Tom is going to bring in the already not yet paradigm uh, tension to bring in that, that uh, we already are free from sin, but we're not yet free from sin. And I have no problem with that tension in Paul's uh, letters everywhere else. And so uh, he's going to bring that up. Um, Will Timmons, uh, he, Timmons has a a book, a a monograph on Romans 7 with Cambridge University Press, very sophisticated, very well done. And Tom and his new commentary draws a lot on Will. And then David Garland at Baylor draws a lot on Will as well. But all three of those, if I'm correct, breathe this already, not yet. So what Paul is saying is, yeah. Uh, Does anyone bring up imputed righteousness versus practical? Am I the only one who still believes that we are saved by an imputed righteousness. Am I, did, did, did the Protestant Reformation, did we, I, I am starting to think that the Protestant Reformation was the biggest failure in the history of church history. Because Luther's whole thing is that we are justified by an alien righteousness, a foreign righteousness. 
that we, we get it by faith, that we are declared to be something that we are not. We are, we are declared to be righteous when we are not righteous. We are sinner and saint at the same time. That, that's like, I, did, did the whole Protestant reference, what, what has happened? We're 39 minutes into this, and they're yet to mention imputed righteousness. They're yet to mention the positional reality of a believer. They're yet to admit that the that we that uh, the uh, passive and active obedience is imputed to our account. Has that just been so abandoned in Christianity that we don't even? Maybe here's a novel idea. Maybe October the 31st, instead of having trunk or treat and dress up at church. You have Reformation night and you go back to the Reformation understanding of justification by faith because of an imputed righteousness. I mean, I don't want to be judgmental or anything, but for crying out loud, like, like you've got to at least acknowledge, either they acknowledge imputed righteousness or if they don't, if you acknowledge imputed righteousness, then you have to know, well, a Christian is saved because of an imputed righteousness, but they're still a sinner. So there is this tension in scripture that one time we're described as a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. Now, any, anyone who reads that passage, you would think, you would think every church member and the history of Christianity would go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If the old is completely gone and all things are new, so are you telling me I don't no longer have a sinful nature? Are you telling me I no longer sin? Well, no, you still sin. Well, then I still have an old nature. So then how do I understand that verse? That is true of me positionally. That is true because of an imputed righteousness. Practically, the old me is still very much alive and kicking. How can the past, scripture sometimes say that we're free, but other times seems to show that we're not free because both are true at the same time. Position, practice, imputed, practical righteousness. Yeah, yeah, you're already set free from sin, but not yet set from sin. And my pushback to that would be what you just said earlier. Um, Paul doesn't use an already not yet here. He begins and ends this uh, uh, monologue with a back then, but now. So I think of back back then, this is who we were, but now. And so Romans 8, therefore now there's no condemnation. He begins and ends. Now, let me let me show you how he ends. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, so that with my mind, I serve the law of God, but the, with flesh, the law of sin. He ends <laughs> with the same conflict that he describes in the whole section. <laughs> and the only, but yet, even though this conflict exists, that I don't do the things I want to do and I do the things I don't want to do, it, the, the, that's, this conflict ends with, there is therefore now no condemnation which are in Christ Jesus. Even though the conflict exists, there is no condemnation because I'm in Christ Jesus. Why is there no condemnation? Because my condemnation, my justification, my salvation is not dependent on the struggle, the lack thereof or whatever. My salvation is dependent alone on an imputed righteousness. For those of us who are in Christ Jesus, but let's give it let's give it to uh, Tom and company that it is already not yet. If you actually look at uh, already not yet with Paul, it's it's better stated as already not fully rather than already not yet. Already not yet becomes a already not really. Um, so we're already set free from sin, uh, but we're we're already set free from sin 
positionally. We're not yet delivered from sin. Practically. (laughs) We're not fully set free from sin. Sin continues to barrage us. It continues to come at us, bro. How do they, how do they not hear how, how confused that is? Hey, we're already set free, but we're not yet completely set free. Then you're not yet set free. You can't be like, you're set free, but you're not yet set free unless you're going to draw the distinction between one is referring to the positional reality and the other one is referring to the practical reality. You can't have both of them speaking about the practical reality because both can't be true practically. I can't be practically completely set free from sin, but at the same time, practically sinning. It's Christian. Can we not even think about this logically? Um, but uh, and so, yeah, it would be already not fully. It, it, every time we see Paul talking about this, um, and so like what he says in Second Corinthians seven. Uh, so, out of reverence with God, we're perfecting holiness out of this reverence for God. So, we already are holy. We're not fully holy. We're perfect. You can't be holy and not yet holy. Both practically. I am wholly possessed. How can... Mm. You've got to be out of your mind to say that we're holy, but not yet holy practically. We are holy positionally because of imputed righteousness. You can't be holy and not holy practically at the same time. Holiness is the complete opposite and separate from sin. In my imputed, in the imputed righteousness, I am holy, right? Because that deals with an imputed righteousness. That is my position. Practically, I'm not holy. The only way to have this distinction is you've got to draw the distinction between who I am because of an imputed righteousness and what I am practically. Or you have to draw this distinction using this language, what I am in Christ and what I am practically or my position versus my practice. You've got to draw a distinction and that the, the, the dividing line between the distinction is the imputed righteousness. I think that or what he says in Philippians three, um, not that I've already arrived. I'm not perfect yet. But one thing I do forgetting what is behind, I press on to grab hold of that, which Christ has already grabbed a hold of for me. And so mm-hmm. there is this already not fully idea, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. It's more of a back then, but now, but let's give them that. Let's say, okay, already not yet still. Um, when we do see Paul talk clearly about already not yet, it's a already not yet, therefore no longer. So we see in Romans chapter eight, he's going to say that, yeah, we, we all already are set free from sin and death, but but not yet because we still will die. The believers are still going to mm-hmm. die. All flesh fades away. The flowers of the field, um, to, to borrow from uh, uh, Peter. Um, but then he says, so therefore no longer fulfill the desires of your sinful uh, flesh. Or the most clear place that we see it is Romans 13, the end of Romans 13, where uh, the, the, the darkness is fading away. The dawn is here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the day of your redemption is closer now than when you first believed. And so you have that already, not yet, where the, the, the twilight or, or the dawn of that. But what is Paul? Already, not yet. Already, positionally, not yet, practically. Glorification is the transformation from the practical to the reality of the positional. And glorification, what I am practically, disappears, and what I am positionally becomes the reality. 
Now, no more pain, no more sickness, no more death, no more sin. I'll say, therefore, no longer um, satisfy the desires of your flesh, but instead put on uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and don't yeah. even think about how to, to do it. And so even if we do have an already not yet, Paul never just stops and says, so that you're going to be utterly powerless to continue to sin, sin, sin. All you do is sin, 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 no matter what. Instead, Paul's going to come and say, no, already not yet. Therefore, no longer identify with the old Adam and live according to your flesh. Okay, so you're saying we can be perfect. Right? Like, they they, they, want to keep moving this to a practical, that practically, I'm not these things, yet I'm not really these things, but therefore, don't be these things. There's got to be, the division has to be between the imputed reality and the practical reality. You've got to have this division, or this makes absolutely utter, absolutely no sense. This becomes utter logical Nonsense. They're just talking circles, thinking they acting like they're so clever and so smart. But they're like, what are you saying? Am I completely set free so I never have to sin? Well, no, you're still going to sin. But you don't have to sin because you're free. You're holy, but you're not. Which is it? The division between imputed and practical answers all of this. Imputed, what am I? Perfect, holy, righteous, free. I'm a new creature in Christ. The old is gone. All things are new. That is true because of imputed righteousness. What am I practical? Practically, I'm a sinner. I'm still bound in sin because I have a sinful nature. I cannot be holy. I cannot be perfect. I cannot keep God's law. Therefore, sin has a controlling factor in me. When will I be set free from this? And glorification, where this practical reality disappears, the body of flesh is transformed into a glorified body, no more sinful nature, no more sin, no more death, no more pain, I've been completely delivered. And then what what I was positionally will become the reality because the practical will be done away with. The old will be gone completely. But right now, there's this weird complete, you know, how would we say it? Division, this, this contradiction, this saint and sinner at the same time. So you're saying there, there is an already not yet component to sanctification where we still do have our sinful flesh with us, the spirit, there's a war going on. Wait, so now they're admitting we still have a sinful nature. Well, if we have a sinful nature, then we haven't been set free. And there's a and he just says there's a war going on. Yeah, the war that sounds like Romans 7, 14 through 25. <sighs> 42 minutes in, and now they admit it. We still have a sinful nature, and there's a war going on. But Romans 7 can't be referring to a lost person. Because we don't have the war going on. Earlier, they said this can't be referring to a lot, a saved person because a saved person is set free from sin. Now they're saying we're not set free. We still have a sinful nature and the war is going on. Is, is Christianity just completely 
unable to deal with the reality of sin. I think Christianity, I really believe this, that we're not able to deal with the reality of sin. We don't know how to process it. We're like, we, someone sinned. Okay, what do we do? What do we do? All right, we're going to excommunicate. We're going to shame. We're going to put a post-it on Twitter. We're going to destroy them. We're going to make sure they can never do this. We don't even know how to deal with the fact that we're all sinning all the time in some way, shape, or form. And we're waiting full liberation and the resurrection, but the the language and imagery that the New Testament uses to describe that state is very different than what we're seeing here. Yeah. And so with the already. All right. So it's true that we have a sinful nature and there's a war, but that language is different than the Romans 7, 14 through 25 language. What? The language is different. Not fully idea. The expectation that we bring to the table is that we're going to lose a sin more than we're going to win right. to sin. But in Scripture, when we do sin, when someone does struggle with uh, porn, uh, that should be the exception to the rule, not the rule. The rule is. All right. So, OK, let me make sure. So the rule is Christians won't struggle with porn. All right, let's move porn to Christians. I wonder how I wonder the frequency that Christian men struggle with lust. Because that shouldn't be the rule. Now, let's break it down. Let's now forget individual sins. So the rule is, is that Christians should not sin. Sinning should be the exception, not the rule. But Christians sin all the time. This is that we we don't answer the door to bring Martin Luther's uh, uh, legend back. Instead, more often than not, we let Christ get the door. We as believers can fall in the Romans 7, but that's not who we're supposed to be. Um, and Wait, so we can fall into Romans 7. Romans 7 is not describing a believer because that is not a believer, because believers aren't that way. But now he just admitted that we can fall into Romans 7. Okay, so we have a sinful nature. So as long as, so we can't be, he's, he, look what's happened. He's acknowledged here that we can't be perfect. We're going to struggle and we can fall into Romans 7. But somehow that's supposed to be the exception. We need to get out of there as soon as possible. But this guy in Romans 7, he lives there. I have been sold, this perfect um, participle. Um, I myself have been sold as a slave to sin. And so that. But you are a slave to sin if you can't be perfect and you can't stop sinning. It controls you. You're a slave to it. So like, so they don't want to say that we don't have a sin. We have a sinful nature. We're going to struggle. We can be in Romans 7, but in a way we can't be in Romans 7 because this is saying that someone's a slave to sin, but we can't be a slave to sin. But we're not a slave to sin, but we can't stop sinning. But somehow we're not a slave to it. That's one of the, the, the key verses okay. for me that says this can't be Paul talking about post-conversion. Let's keep going and probably have to sp- maybe speed yeah. up. Walk the- All right. We're going to stop right here. Oh, man, because they're going to keep going. All right. Romans 18, 53, left. Wow. 
Ladies and gentlemen, I, I, don't, I don't even know what to say. I don't even know what to say. I, I literally am just, I, I, before, they've gone 43 minutes to really arrive at what I have said is a fact this entire time. Here are the facts. Christians continue to sin. Period. They want to try to say it's not the rule. Whatever. It's 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 complete garbage. It's complete garbage for them to say that because they can say it's not the rule. Sin is the rule because we. I'll give you scripture. Love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. Be ye holy as God is holy. Three commands. Three commands in the New Testament. Nobody fulfills those ever. Meaning you're in a perpetual state of sin. And they say, but it's not the rule. It's complete garbage. I, I'm not even going to be nice. It's just a complete garbage take. It's not true. So here is the reality. We continue to sin and thought, word, and deed internally and externally. We cannot be perfect. We cannot stop sinning, meaning that we are still enslaved to sin Practically speaking, sin still dominates and controls because we can't get to perfection. We can't get to holiness, meaning something is keeping us from that. What is keeping us from that has to have the controlling, dominating force. And and unless you're going to say that the old nature is completely gone and we've been completely set free, then you would have to acknowledge perfection is not only possible, it's the rule. And nobody will say that. Well, very few will say that. They're not willing to say that. So we're sinners now. Okay. So then how do we understand the passages that seem to say that we're a new creature and that we're free and we're set on all of these victorious kinds of passages? Here's the only way to understand it. Imputed righteousness as a Christian, his perfect obedience, his passive and active obedience, his righteousness, his holiness has been imputed to my account. So in Christ, in my position, I'm holy, perfect, free, righteous. I'm a new creature. The old is gone. Everything is new. That is true in my position. In practice, I'm still a sinner. That's the only way to understand this dichotomy, this apparent contradiction, this, this really weird division, this distinction between the two. They yet to even acknowledge the imputed righteousness part of it. But yet, after all of this time, 43 minutes, they finally had to admit, well, we can slip back into our Romans 7 mentality. We do have a sinful nature. We do struggle. <laughs> all right, ladies and gentlemen, I, I don't know what to say right now. I'm just like, I, I'm, I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted in dealing with this. It's like, I don't... Christians just, we, what is the deal with the Christian world and capable of going, man, we sin all the time. It's like, we can't admit it. It's like, it's like, again, it's like that person who, who can't say that they're wrong, wrong, I'm wrong, I can't, they can't say they're wrong. It's like Christians, we want, on one hand, we, we will generally say, well, of course we sin, but then everything else, we act like we don't sin, that we can, we can, we are overcomers. We've been set free. We can say yes to God. We can say no to sin. I, but then we immediately, once you get confronted, well, I mean, we can't do it perfectly. I mean, we're still going to sin. Uh, well, what? Which is it? All right. I'm just going to start repeating myself because now I'm getting frustrated. And I want to make it very clear, not frustrated at those individuals, don't know those individuals. 
I'm not in any way, shape, or form trying to attack those individuals. I'm simply saying that their 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 thesis, their their philosophy, their their concept flies in the face of just reality, and they're ignoring their 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 position is ignoring imputed righteousness, positional reality versus practical righteousness and practical reality. As Luther would say, we are saints and sinners at the exact same time. Paraphrasing Luther, but you get the idea. All right. Email me your thoughts on all of this. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. We will gather all of these messages and we're going to create a mini series. Uh, someone's going to work on the artwork. We'll call it uh, Romans 7, Saved or Not Saved. We'll put them all together in chronological order. And I would challenge you to go listen to all of them. It, that, that series will be available on the Church One app. That's Church O N E, Church O N E. Once you download the app, search for Theology Central or you can search for us on. Uh, the Sermons 2.0 app, just look for Theology Central, follow us, look for our series, and well, we'll get this in a series, because I think this is a very important conversation and discussion. All right, thanks for listening. Everyone have a great day. God bless.